Section 74 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lay Down Your Arms by Berta von Suttner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 18, Part 2. Metz Fallen. The news resounded in the city like some strange and overpowering cry of terror. To me the news of the taking of a fortress was a message which brought rather a relief, for I thought, well, that is decisive, and it was only for this that the bloody game might be over. It was for this, only this, that I longed. But no, there was nothing decisive in it. More fortresses remained. After a defeat, all that is to be done is to pick yourself up again and strike out again at them twice as hard. The chance of arms may change at any time. Ah, yes, the advantage may be now on this side, now on that. It's only woe that is certain, death that is certain to be on both. Trochu felt himself called upon to arouse the spirit of the populace by a new proclamation, and in it appealed to an old motto of Bretagne, with God's help for our fatherland. That did not sound new to me. I had met with something like it before in other proclamations. It did not fail to have its effect. The people were inspirited. Now the thing was to turn Paris into a fortress. Paris, a fortress. I could not take in the idea. The city which Victor Hugo called La Ville Lumière, which is the point of attraction for the whole world of civilization, riches, the pursuit of art, and the enjoyment of life, the point from which radiate splendor, fashions, esprit. This city is now to be fortified, i.e., become the point at which hostile attacks are to be aimed, the target for shot, to close itself against all intercourse and expose itself to the danger of being set in flames by bombardment or starved by famine. And that is done by these people, de gaieté de coeur, in the spirit of self-sacrifice, with joyous emulation, as if it was a question of carrying out the most useful, the most noble work. The work was proceeded with in feverish haste. Ramparts had to be erected on which troops could be placed and shot-holes cut in them, also trenches dug outside the gates, drawbridges erected, covering works repaired, canals bridged over, and protected by breastworks, powder magazines built, and a flotilla of gunboats placed on the Seine. What a fever of activity, what expenditure of exertion and industry, what gigantic expense in labor and money! How exhilarating and ennobling all that would have been if it had been expended on works of public utility, but for the purpose of working mischief, of annihilation, a purpose which is not even one's own, but only a move on the strategic chessboard, it is inconceivable. In order to be able to stand a siege which might possibly be a long one, the city was provisioned. Up to the present time, according to all experience, no such thing as an impregnable fortification has been known. Capitulation is always only a question of time. And yet fortresses have always been erected anew, and provisioned anew with necessaries, in spite of the mathematical impossibility of protecting oneself against the duration of a blockade. The measures taken were on a great scale. Mills were erected and cattle parks laid out, and yet at last the moment must come when the corn will give out and the meat will be consumed. But people do not carry their thoughts so far. By that time the enemy will be driven back over the frontier or annihilated in the country. Now the whole people are joining the army of the fatherland. Everyone offers himself for the service or is pressed into it, and all the firemen in the country were called in to join the garrison of Paris. 
There might be fires in the provinces, but what of that? Such little accidents disappear when a national disaster is in question. On August 17th, 60,000 firemen had already been enrolled in the capital. The sailors, too, were called in, and new troops of soldiers were formed every day under various names, volontaires, éclaireurs, francs-tireurs. Events followed each other in ever-hastening movement, but now only military events. Everything else was suspended. Nothing else was any more thought of around us except mort aux Prussiens. A storm of savage hatred collected. It had not yet broken out, but one heard it rumble. In all official proclamations, in all the street cries, in all public transactions, the conclusion was always mort aux Prussiens. All these troops, regular and irregular, these munitions, these workpeople, pressing to the fortifications with their tools and barrows, these transports for weapons, everything that one sees and hears means in its every form and tone, in all its lightning and bluster, in all its flame and rage, mort aux Prussiens. Or, in other words, and then indeed it sounds like a cry of love and warms even the softest hearts, it means pour la patrie, but in essence it is the same. I asked Frederick, you are of Prussian extraction. How does all this unfriendly feeling, which is now finding loud expression, affect you? You said the same to me before in 1866, and I answered you then as I do today, that I suffer from these expressions of hatred not as the subject of any country, but as a man. If I judge of the opinions of the people here from a national point of view, I cannot but think them right. They call it la haine sacrée de l'ennemi and that motive forms an important element in warlike patriotism. They are now occupied with this one thought, to liberate their country from a hostile invasion. That it is themselves who provoke this invasion by declaring war, they have forgotten. Indeed, it was not they who did it, but their government, which they believed on its word, and now they lose no time over reproaches or reflections as to who called down this misfortune on them. It has come, and all their force, all their enthusiasm, must be spent on turning it aside again, or else uniting with unthinking self-sacrifice in a common ruin. Trust me, there is much noble capacity for love in us children of men. The pity only is that we lavish it on the old world tracks of hatred, and on the other side, the hated ones, the invaders, the red-haired eastern barbarians, what are they doing? They were the challenged and they are pressing forward into the country of those who threaten to overrun theirs. A Berlin! A Berlin! Do not you recollect how this cry kept pealing through the whole city, even down from the roofs of omnibuses? And now these are marching. Nach Paris! Why do the shouters of A Berlin attribute that as a crime to them? Because there cannot be any logic or justice in that national sentiment whose foundation is the assumption that we are ourselves, that is the first, and the others are barbarians. And this forward march of the Germans from victory to victory strikes me with admiration. I have been a soldier also, and I know with what a magical power victory fastens on the mind, what pride, what joy are contained in it. It is in any case the aim, the reward for all the sacrifices made, for the renunciation of rest and happiness, for the risk of life. But then why do not the conquered adversaries, since they too are soldiers and know what fame accompanies victory, why do they not admire their conquerors? Why is it never said in an account of a battle by the losing party, the enemy has obtained a glorious victory? I repeat, because the war spirit and patriotic egotism are the denial of all justice.
So it came about, I can see it from all our conversations entered in the Red Books in those days, that we did not and could not think of anything at that time except the result of the present national duel. Our happiness, our poor happiness, we had it, but we dared not enjoy it. Yes, we possessed everything that might have procured for us a heaven of delight on earth. Boundless love, riches, rank, the charming growing boy Rudolph, our heart's idol, Sylvia, independence, ardent interest in the world of mind. But before all this, a curtain had fallen. How dared we? How could we taste of our joys while around us everyone was suffering and trembling, shrieking and raving? It was as if one should set oneself to enjoy oneself heartily on board a storm-tossed vessel. A theatrical fellow, this Trochu, Frederick told me. It was on August 25th. Such a coup de théâtre has been played off today. You will never guess it. A woman called out for military service, I guessed. Well, it does concern the women, but they are not called out. On the contrary. Then are the Suttlers discharged, or the Sisters of Mercy? You have not guessed it yet, either. There's something of dismissal in it, to be sure, and as to Suttlers, too, in the sense that these ladies minister the cup of pleasure, and in the sense the ladies dismissed are merciful, too. But in short, without more riddles, the demi-monde is exiled. And the Minister of War has taken that step? What connection? I cannot see any, either. But the people are in ecstasies over the regulation. In fact, they are always glad when anything happens. From every new order they expect a change, like many sick folks who greet every medicine which is given to them as possibly a panacea. When vice is driven out of the city, so think the pious, who knows whether heaven, now evidently angry, will not again extend its protection over the inhabitants. And now, when people are preparing for the serious time of the siege, with all its privations, what have these silly, wasteful women of pleasure to do here? And so most people, excluding those concerned, think the regulation a proper, moral, and besides a patriotic one, since a great number of these women are foreigners, English, Southerners, nay, even Germans, some of whom may perhaps be spies. No, no, there's only room in the city now for her own children, and only for her virtuous children. On August 28th occurred something still worse, another banishment. All Germans had to quit Paris within three days— the poison, the deadly, long-abiding poison which lay in this regulation, those who wrote the decree possibly had not in any way suspected. The hatred of Germans was awakened by it. For how long a time, even after the war, this misfortune was to go on, bearing its terrible fruit, I know at this day. From that time forward, France and Germany, those two great, flourishing, magnificent countries, were no longer two nations whose armies had fought out a chivalrous conflict. Hatred for the whole of the opposed nation pervaded the entire people. Enmity was erected into an institution which was not restricted to the duration of the war, but ensured its continuance as hereditary enmity, even to future generations. Exiled. Obliged to leave the city within three days. I had occasion to see how hardly, how inhumanly hardly, this command pressed on many worthy, harmless families. Among the business people who were supplying us with goods for the decoration of our house, several were Germans, one a carriage builder, one an upholsterer, one an art furniture manufacturer, settled from ten to twenty years in Paris, where they had got their domestic hearth, where they had allied themselves in marriage with Parisians, where they had the whole of their business connection, and now they had to go out, out, in three days, 
shut up their house, leave all that was dear and familiar to them, lose their fortune, their customers, their inheritance. The poor creatures came running to us in consternation and told us of the misery that had fallen on them. Even the work which they were on the point of delivering to us had to be put aside, and the workshops closed. Wringing their hands and with tears in their eyes, they complained of their sufferings to us. I have an old father, an invalid, said one, and my wife is looking for her confinement any day, and now we must go in three days. I have not a sou in the house, another complained. All my customers who owe me money will be in no hurry to meet their obligations. A week hence I should have completed a large order which would have made me comfortably off, and now I must leave all in confusion. And why? Why was all this misery brought on these poor people? Because they belonged to a nation whose army did its duty successfully, or because, to go further back in the chain of causes, a Hohenzollern might possibly have allowed it to enter into his mind to assume the Spanish throne if offered to him. No, this because, too, has not arrived at the ultimate reason. All this is only the pretext, not the cause of that war. End of section 74. Read by Sandra.